And tonight, straight from the source, E. Jean Carroll and her first CNN interview since her $83 million victory against Donald Trump. What she says she plans to do with the money and what it was like to come face to face with a man found liable of sexually assaulting her. Also tonight, the three U.S. soldiers killed in a drone attack, all from the same Army post in Georgia. As the Pentagon says, Iran's fingerprints are on the strike and President Biden is preparing to respond tonight. Also, a scandal that has engulfed the United Nations agency, bringing life-saving aid into Gaza as a dozen U.N. staffers accused of helping Hamas carry out its attack on Israel. Now major countries are suspending their funding with Gazans on the brink of starvation. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, as another major decision is looming for Donald Trump's finances, there is a very real possibility that he could be on the hook for half a billion dollars in court judgments by the end of this week. The judge in his New York civil fraud trial is expected to rule very soon, deciding whether Trump owes hundreds of millions of dollars after he was found liable for business fraud. Tonight, the former president is still reeling after the last court decision He's been lashing out at his rallies and on social media about all kinds of grievances, but notably not one that he had been mentioning repeatedly on a daily basis before. That's Eugene Carroll. Perhaps now he has 83 million reasons to think twice about doing so. His attorney, however, is speaking about the case. Alina Haba has sent a letter to a judge who is presiding over the defamation case tonight, accusing Judge Lewis Kaplan of having a conflict of interest with Carol's attorney, Roberta Kaplan. Two Kaplans, I should note, as they stress repeatedly as this trial is going on, are not related. But that's not what Trump's legal team is arguing about. That's not what they have. More on what they are saying in this new filing in a moment. But first tonight, to the first CNN interview, my colleagues Poppy Harlow and Phil Mattingly spoke with E. Jean Carroll and Roberta Kaplan. What was it like to be with Donald Trump in that courtroom? He did not attend your first trial, but he was there when it came down to the money and what it would cost him. You hadn't seen him since 1996. I hadn't seen him since uh, he assaulted me in in the dressing room. Uh, And um, preparing to see him was terrifying. Uh, The days leading up, as Robert uh, brought me around stronger and stronger. Um, it was so, uh, I hadn't slept, I hadn't eaten, I couldn't think, I lost my language when she was trying to prepare me to go uh, to do testimony in front of Donald Trump. And then when we were in the courtroom and Robbie went to the lectern, she said, Good morning, Eugene. Please state your name and spell it for the jury, for the court. And there he was, and he was nothing. He was just no power. He had, he was zero. That was, I was flabbergasted. And from then we just sailed through. She brought me in. She said, say your name. And I just looked at Robbie, saw he was nothing. And it came out from there. Did you, did you make eye contact with him? Many times. And what was that like? I'm t- it, he's an emperor without clothes. It's like looking, 
Uh, nothing. It was like nothing. Were you surprised by that? Because the environment, <laughs> yeah. no, I can imagine, but the environment, not just from what you went through, but also the environment in that courtroom was a yeah. very different, very Ooh. volatile, very heated environment in terms of both uh, Donald Trump's attorney and Donald Trump for it to end up like that. Were you surprised? Yes, yes, I had been prepared for the worst force you know, on the earth today, the most powerful, the most, the most effective, the most money, the richest, the most, you know, you know. And there he is, he's nothing. Why? It's just the people around him who give him the power. Mm -hmm. It's the emperor without clothes. It's uh, Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale. You know, it, people just gave him clothes when he wasn't wearing any. That Remember the fairy tale? So that's Donald Trump. Robbie, you're giving your closing argument, and Donald Trump gets up and he walks out. And I, I'm not sure if you could see him out of the periphery, right? I think your back was to him. But what did you think when you learned that he walked out? Yeah, so I, it's, it's true. I didn't see him at all because I was facing the jury and he was to yeah. my left. Uh, but the judge said something. He told me that he told the whole courtroom that he'd gotten up and left and walked out. And I thought to myself, whoa, like in a case about whether you can follow the rules or not and you can not be a bully... Not following the rules and acting like a bully is not a good move. So I thought to myself, like, okay, that's just going to give us more money, honestly. You got awarded 80, over $83 million from this jury. Trump's obviously appealing. He has the right to do that. Big question over the next couple of weeks, is he going to get a bond for that $83 million? If he doesn't, when could your client see that money or some of it? So he has two choices. He either has to post a bond, it's called an appellate bond, which requires him to put down 20%. Or he has to deposit, which is what he did for the first verdict, the entire amount with the court. So 83 plus 9%. So call it $89 million. If he can't do either of those, then we can start collecting right now. And we will, for sure. Do you believe he can do either of those? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. He didn't get a bond last time. So maybe he's going to try to deposit the funds. I don't know what he'll do. Eugene, one of the... Uh, <laughs> Paradoxical is probably the best word I can put it. Dynamics of this moment for him, for the former president and his legal troubles has been politically, he only seems to get more powerful within the Republican Party. Um, I understand you've been focused on the trial, but do you see that? Do you have concerns, not based on your trial specifically, but just about the fact that this person who you've stared down in a courtroom has only gotten more powerful as all of this has played out and you've won repeatedly in these cases? It is a paradox. The courtroom was not a courtroom to him. It was a campaign stop. That was clear. Um, so we had two different objectives. Ours was to win a case. His was to win voters. We'll see how that plays out, that he's uh, using me to win voters. Sexual assault. A man found liable for sexual assault is using the woman he sexually assaulted to get votes. You may soon, though, have quite a bit of his money. And I wonder how you plan to use that. Oh, it's inspiring. We talk about it a lot. <laughs> We're going to do good with that money. We're going to do... Mary Trump has suggested uh, we turn Trump Tower into an animal sanctuary, for instance. A joke. That was a joke, Poppy. <laughs> uh, no, but we're, we're inspired to uh, do not waste a penny of this. And we have some good ideas that we're working on. Specifically aimed at well, what would oppose well, Trump? Well, Donald Trump hates women. Remember the New York Magazine, the famous quote when they said, Donald, what do you think of women? He said, 
women. They're not worth a piece of crap. Remember that quote? And so I think one of the things we could do, seeing as how he's very instrumental in taking away women's rights over their bodies across the United States, maybe we can think about how we can restore women their rights. Hmm. Use a little money for that. Hmm. Do you think of what would happen if Trump is reelected? Oh, please. I can't think of that. I can't think of that. I don't think, I, I don't think it's going to happen. And Robbie particularly. Uh, tell them, Robbie, why you don't think that's possible. I just think it's what you saw in the jury, in the courtroom from the jury, that when people are really confronted with the facts, when the rules apply, uh, people see the truth about Donald Trump. And this isn't the first trial. He's got a lot of trials coming up before that election, and it's going to happen to him over and over and over again. And I don't think he has enough Americans who are willing to buy what he says in major rallies to elect him president. Or at least that's what I hope. I want to ask you, Robbie, about uh, how Trump's going to appeal this. We, we have a, a big clue from what his attorney, Alina Habba, said. You had asked Judge Kaplan, just for some background here, to block the court or Trump's team from being able to present legal arguments about the jury's rejection of the rape claim. They found him liable for sexual abuse. I want to be very clear on that and defamation. Alina Habba thinks there's a big chance for them on appeal because of what Judge Kaplan ordered here. Let's listen to her, and then I want to give you a chance sure. to respond. Here she was. Before I walked into court, that judge decided that every single defense President Trump had, we were not allowed to raise in front of the jury. It is in writing, and I encourage the journalists, the real journalists, to take the minute to look at his orders. There was no proof, and I couldn't prove that she didn't bring in the dress. There was no DNA. There was no expert. My experts were denied, two of them. Two of them were denied to come in. Your response, Robbie, and then, and then you, E.G., maybe you go first, because you weren't next to her. You couldn't respond in that moment. Would you like to respond now? Alina Haba is uh, gloriously talented. She's very skilled. She uh, has ludicrous confidence. And when you hear her speak, we understand that most of what she just said was entirely made up, entirely untrue. Yeah, I, I, I understand that that's what she's saying, because that's all she has to say. Uh, but Judge Kaplan, no relation, <laughs> uh, is one of the most respected judges uh, in New York City. All his rulings were completely appropriate. The rules are the rules. He followed the rules. And now Donald Trump and Ms. Hobb are going to have to follow the rules. And that's what the appellate court's going to say as well. After the president's win, former president's win in Iowa, he gave this speech where he was very generous and, and unifying and People, for some bizarre reason, afterwards were like, this is the new Trump. And then New Hampshire happened. He had a very different uh, way of operating. After this victory for you all, he has not mentioned your name. He has not said much at all about the case. I'm wondering, is this going to be another one of those things where he does it for three days and then reverts back to form? Or is there a legal... When you're looking at this as a lawyer or as, as somebody who's been involved in this case, you say, there's a very real reason why that individual will not be talking about this ever again. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly being told uh, not to talk about it, and he's concerned that if he keeps talking about it, he's going to have to pay even more money than he's already been ordered to pay. Valid concern. Right, but as the judge noted in the middle of the trial, at times he can't control himself. I mean, the judge mm. said that to him, sir, you can't you appear to be unable to control yourself. And if that, if that part of him takes over, then he could say something again, I, you know. And you're willing to bring another defamation case. Absolutely, everything's on the table. Eugene, often uh, 
many women in this country and around the world aren't believed. And a jury of your peers believed you. Yes. And awarded you for that pain that you have endured. And then the defamation on top of it. What is your message to other women who are not believed, who don't have the platform you have? Well, this, this, this is why this decision bodes well for women across. It came at a time when we needed that positive, we believe you statement. Um, so this win really was uh, for every woman who stood up and been knocked down. Every woman. Um, and Robbie and I are here. We're, we have planted our flag and we want to turn things around and uh, make sure uh, that women are believed. And here with their reaction to that interview, former Obama White House senior advisor, policy advisor, Ashley Allison, former Trump White House communications director, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, and former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig. Alyssa, just as someone who worked in the Trump White House, I wonder what you made of, of E. Jean Carroll there. So listen, she's a very compelling person to hear from. I think that the way she's speaking to women will resonate. But what we have to think about from the political side, first I should say um, a landmark, huge eye-popping sum that she was awarded and getting justice so long after the fact. We know that sexual assault is wildly underreported and then so much later to get justice. But I don't know that this has a political impact. And the reason I say this is this. Um, if you turn to right-wing media, this is crickets. It is not getting covered. You would be hard-pressed to even find that the settlement came down. Um, I think that aside from Nikki Haley actually saying the jury was right and commenting on it, it's barely making it into the right of center bloodstream. But it's important for the country. It's important that she's getting justice. Trump, who had been truly talking about Eugene Carroll nonstop, denying knowing her, saying everything that he's been saying for months now, ever since he was found liable nearly a year ago, last May, has not mentioned Eugene Carroll once since this came down. What do you make of that? Well, I find what she said in the interview is that he still in some way could use this, to Alyssa's point, to further solidify his base of voters who were not detracted from him when he made explicit comments about grabbing women in their private parts, acknowledging that he had that right to do it because of his celebrity. And so will he at some point use this as a um, conspiracy against Donald Trump as the other cases come down? He has lost this, but does he say if, he, if another uh, judgment comes down in any one of the cases that he has of the 91 charges, is he going to use that to say, it's just the big state trying to come after me and then use it as a fundraising email? I will just say this. He's smart to keep his mouth shut now because he's back in court because he couldn't keep his mouth shut <laughs> after the first time. When Do you he think he could... Keep his mouth shut and not talk it's about it? It's only a matter of time. I think the reason, I mean, my jaw hit the floor when I heard 83.3 yeah. million, but he literally could not stop talking about this woman. He could not stop in real time defaming her and in the courtroom. I think, by the way, this jury was two women, seven men, a jury of his peers that came down with this decision. I think they realized they had to throw the book at him and it had to be such a large sum that he might stop. And we'll see if he actually can. Yeah, including at the scene in Town Hall when he was talking about it. Ellie, there is a new filing from Alina Haba, the Trump legal team uh, that you saw. They say they're going to appeal the verdict. No surprise there. But in this filing, they're accusing the judge, Judge Kaplan here, and the, her attorney is Roberta Kaplan, of failing to report a relationship with Roberta Kaplan, saying that they worked together in the 1990s. And Roberta Kaplan, I should know, in a statement to CNN, is denying that there is a conflict. 
How does how does this get handled? Yeah, this is a bogus motion by the Trump team. There's nothing there. First of all, by the way, same last name, no relation between Judge Kaplan and Roberta Kaplan. Every judge in that courthouse knows, socializes with, has worked with, sometimes maybe mentored dozens, hundreds of attorneys in this city. I used to practice in that courthouse in front of judges who used to be my colleagues, my supervisors. If anything, they were tougher on me as a result of it. Hmm. That is not enough for a conflict of interest. And in fact, if you look at the motion, it's self-defeating because Trump's team cites this rule of ethics that says, well, it could be a conflict of interest if the judge worked with the attorney on this matter or while the attorney was working on this matter. The relationship they're talking about here was a law firm professional relationship that goes back 30 years. Judge Kaplan's been on the bench 30 years. They have their appeals issues. This ain't one of them. Okay, that's good to know. And also with us here tonight is someone who's been watching Trump's finances very closely, Forbes senior editor Dan Alexander. And Dan, it's great to have you because the other aspect of this is how Trump pays for this. And, you know, he's claimed in depositions previously that his stockpile of cash, uh, he said, substantially in excess of $400 million. But, but based on what your analysis has been in your reporting, can he pay this? He can pay this. You know, he right now does have about $400 million of liquid assets. And so, sure, $83 million would hurt, but yeah, he could pay it. Now, where it gets tricky is when you start adding in the other potential penalties that he could have to pay, and then he could all of a sudden find himself in a real cash crunch. Okay, so the other one that you're referencing there is, you know, we're waiting on the New York civil case here where he's already been found liable for fraud. They're just judging to see what the, what the price of that essentially would be. The attorney general in New York wants it to be $370 million dollars. So if that does happen, and we don't know, but if that does happen, paired with the $83 million, how much of Trump's net worth would be affected by that? Well, you know, about a fifth of his net worth, but more importantly, that's more cash than he has. So all of a sudden, he's going to have to refinance something, sell something. And when you look across his portfolio, many of the assets that are easy to borrow against, he's already borrowed money against. And so there's not a ton left that he can easily go to a bank, particularly with the credit issues that he's had in the past, and say, hey, can you just give me $100 million here, $100 million there to sort some things out? Remember, banks at this point are wary of Donald Trump. And so it's going to be tricky and delicate for him to figure this out. He has, however, in the past, time after time, figured different ways to slip out of cash crunches. And so we'll see if he's able to do it again, if he does face sort of the double whammy penalty that you're describing. Well, one option that he's had available to him since he has been running as a candidate is he fundraises off of this. I mean, he's constantly fundraising off his legal troubles, has quite a bit of his own legal fees that he's paying for and others. But can he actually use what he raises with those those political action committees to pay for things like like damages to Eugene Carroll? I'm skeptical that he's going to be able to suck enough money out of his political apparatus to really make a dent in, if you're talking about 400, 450 million dollars, something like that. You know, if you're paying for lawyers, you're paying a couple million dollars here, a couple million dollars there. Sure, that's real money, but to Donald Trump, that's not a huge amount of money. And what he needs here, potentially, is a huge amount of money. I don't think that he's going to be able to just pull that straight out of, out of his political operation. He's going to have to turn to his real estate assets and his business. And Alyssa, you know Trump well. When you look at it, what Dan's talking about there, the number and totality of this that's facing him. I mean, he's facing 91 criminal counts, but this is a direct threat to his, what holds he holds so dear, his personal wealth. 
it's his, his livelihood, the brand, the the wealth that he's tried to create or the way he positions himself. Listen, this will be an extraordinary hit. And I do caution that even talking to folks on the right after this judgment came down and expecting that we're going to see something soon from New York, there's a tremendous skepticism from folks who support Trump that they do think this looks like a witch hunt. They see these sums and they're like, we've never even heard of something like this. This feels like the state or the Democrats are coming down against Trump and they're trying to take down our man. So I don't see this in any way as helping maybe change the tide of sentiment around him, but he is going to be genuinely strapped for catch. I, I actually think Dan's a little more bullish that he can pay this than I am, but um, if both of these come down, he's going to be in a tough place. What if he can't pay it? What happens then? <laughs> well, then they have to start liquidating, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he doesn't have to necessarily deliver a suitcase full of cash, but he does have extensive assets. It's a question of, is he What if he's to- reelected, though? If he's in office... You can still enforce a judgment. Absolutely. What you, you, there are limits, you're right, on what you can do against a sitting president. You certainly cannot try a sitting president, for example. You can, under the Paula Jones case, sue a sitting president, and you certainly can collect an outstanding civil judgment. So while winning the White House back, if he does, will get him out of a lot of trouble, it will not get him out of having to repay these verdicts. But isn't this, like, part of the issue is, let's just say, in November, Donald Trump is elected president again. He's going to have to be focused on settlements and whatnot rather than focusing on governing the country. And that's the problem with having this person potentially be the not with including many other problems. But his focus is going to be so distracted because of his own self-created problems because he lacks self-control. He is irresponsible. He can't keep his mouth shut, as we just talked about. And then this is the person that could have the nuclear codes worrying about whether or not he can keep his fortune or not. It's interesting. That's exactly the analysis the Supreme Court gave in the Paula Jones case. They said, on the one hand, you have to be accountable. On the other hand, this person's trying to run the country. And they weighed it out and said, civil case can stand. So I'm so glad you brought up the politics of this, though, and what it means, like, if he is back in office, because clearly Republicans on the Hill are getting the sense that, I mean, he very well could be. He seems like he's on the path to the nomination, though we don't know. Senator James Langford was asked if, if he had any hesitations about Trump going back to the White House in light of what's happened here. And this is what how he phrased it to reporters. And obviously, these are legal cases. I don't jump in the middle of a legal case. Uh, it, it's been interesting the number of legal cases that have come up against President Trump and then have failed and have been dropped or have been kicked out of the courts on it. This one's actually went through. He's already said he's going to challenge it. So let the courts actually make their decisions and let the American people make their decisions. Okay, if you're not on the Hill acting as a spokesperson who would be like, that's a great answer. I mean, what would you what do you what do you make of that? I mean, I think that's about as far as you can go if you're James Langford, a very conservative Oklahoma senator who is going to end up supporting Donald Trump. But I think Nikki Haley has been trying to make the point. Her whole argument isn't even attacking the substance of what happened. It's he's going to be focused on Eugene Carroll, on being in courtrooms, on trying to stay out of jail like that. That is exactly the problem. How do you run the country if that's your focus? And to add insult to injury, Trump is trying to sink the immigration deal. That, that James Langford, Langford has spent months, months. <laughs> trying to negotiate. We'll see what happens with that. Everyone, thank you. Stand by. Also tonight, we are learning more about the three U.S. soldiers who were killed in that deadly drone strike in the Middle East. The major question tonight is how is President Biden going to respond? We'll be joined by a former U.S. Defense Secretary right after this. Plus tonight, a U.N. agency that is crucial to the humanitarian relief that is being distributed in Gaza now being cut off by major countries amid accusations that staffers took part, some of them, in the October 7th attack. When and how will the U.S. respond? 
Those are the major questions tonight after three American soldiers were killed and 40 more were injured in Jordan. The White House is vowing to retaliate as the Middle East is lurching toward the precipice of a wider war tonight. The families of 23-year-old specialist Brianna Moffitt, 24-year-old specialist Kennedy Sanders, and 46-year-old Sergeant William Rivers all mourning tonight. All three of them were members of a reserve unit that is based out of Fort Moore, Georgia. They all died in a drone attack at a small outpost in Jordan near the border of Syria and Iraq. And tonight, the White House and the Pentagon are pointing the finger at Iran. We know these groups are supported by Iran, um, and therefore they do have their fingerprints on this. Of course, we hold Iran responsible. We know they support them. We know they resource them. We know they train them. Uh, we know that they're certainly not discouraging uh, these attacks. President Biden convened his national security team, as you can see here in the Situation Room today. It's a group that included Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who is just back today from the hospital after weeks recovering from treatment for prostate cancer. Two U.S. officials tell CNN that the enemy drone was approaching the outpost around the same time that an American drone was returning to base, which led to confusion over whether it was hostile. That uncertainty may have been what caused the delay to the U.S. response. And I'm joined now by the former Secretary of Defense under the Trump administration, Mark Esper. Secretary Esper, thank you for being here tonight. I just wonder if you were in the Pentagon at this moment, how would you advise the Commander-in-Chief to respond? Good evening, Caitlin. Uh, good to be with you tonight. And, and first of all, I, I want to remind everybody that our thoughts and prayers should go out to the uh, family members and the service members who lost their lives that were identified today. And I might add, given the nature of it, it's a reserve unit, this often affects communities as well. So mm-hmm. a lot to be said for that. Look, I, if I were sitting in the, uh, in the situation room like I was on several occasions with President Trump, I would be advising that we need to strike Iranian um, personnel and facilities. And uh, we would be preparing a range of options for him that started outside of Iran and worked its way inside Iran until that we felt, first of all, that we, we responded appropriately to what had happened, the tragedy the, uh, of the attack. But secondly, we tried to keep trying to achieve a deterrence with the Iranians. That would be my first message. Secondly, I would argue that we need to begin building an international coalition that uh, comes together and imposes tough financial sanctions on Iran for all that it's doing in this region to cause turbulence, beginning with Israel and Gaza, but extended to the Houthis who are shutting down, you know, 12, 15 percent of uh, commercial trade through the Red Sea. So it's a big problem. It's only going to get worse if it's not addressed appropriately. Given you've been in this position where you're in the situation room and you are drawing up those plans for the president, I mean, how do you make the calculation of whether you which we've been told by sources is on the table, you know, striking Iranian-backed proxies outside of Iran or actually striking on Iranian soil. I mean, how do you make a, a tough calculation like that? Yeah, look, it's a combination of science and art. The science is we know what it would take to destroy certain targets. We have estimates of uh, how much damage would be caused, how many people would be killed. Uh, we could have an estimate of the effect it might have on operations in the region or elsewhere. And then the art of it is, 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 uh, is the subjectivity that's also uh, informed by the intelligence personnel who are at the table to give you a sense of what might cause Tehran to pause, uh, what might cause them to react and respond, and what might achieve deterrence. So there is a lot of art to this. That's where, why I like to start uh, on the left side of the ladder, if you will, the escalation ladder, and work your way up 
until you find that point at which you get them to stop the bad behavior. Although, look, quite frankly, after 40 plus years, this is so ingrained into their culture, into the political being of the, the, the theocracy that I'm not sure that you can achieve that without going uh, without you know having a much more comprehensive approach to the problem. And the one part of this that we've learned as you know, they are looking at the calculation is that you know, air defenses weren't necessarily prepared here because the hostile drone was coming in at the same time that an American drone was also returning to base. How common, from your experience, is a mix-up like that? Not common. Uh, you know, I have some questions about that. I think that that needs to be really investigated quite thoroughly. I'm sure the command is doing that, particularly since American lives were lost and, and over 40 soldiers injured. Given you worked under former President Trump, we've seen him responding, saying uh, his quote was, this attack would have never happened if he were president. But I, I covered the Trump administration. There were attacks by Iran on a U.S. base directly when he was in office. I mean, can you just fact check that comment for us? Yeah, look, it's hard to predict in some ways. On, on one hand, I, I th thought he made a pretty bold decision in terms of striking uh, Soleimani, General Soleimani, uh, in Iraq at the Baghdad airport. I was part mm -hmm. of that decision, that process, and it was based on intelligence that told us that um, he was planning strikes against diplomatic uh, facilities, U.S. service members, et cetera. So I thought it was a bold decision. I thought it was, it was the right decision. But I also recall that when I was coming into office in June 2019 or so during that handover period, you know, he pulled the punch in terms of uh, hesitating to shoot down uh, an Iranian drone that had taken down, I think, our Reaper over the Persian Gulf and then refused other actions that were pending. So, uh, you know, I, I've seen the good and bad. So it's hard to predict in some ways how he would behave in certain situations. It oftentimes depends on, um, you know, the decision makers um, and, and others around him, uh, that uh, cabinet members who would voice an opinion and argue one way or the other. Secretary Mark Esper, thank you for joining tonight. Thanks, Caitlin. And as President Biden weighs a response, I'll be joined by a top Democrat on the House Armed Services Committee after a quick break. From the Pentagon's count between October 17th and today, January 29th, U.S. forces have been attacked 165 times, 66 times in Iraq, 98 times in Syria, and then yesterday's deadly attack that killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan, making it 165 in total. The number of troops injured in those attacks, around 80. I'm joined tonight by the ranking member on the House Armed Services Committee, Democratic Congressman Adam Smith from Washington. Congressman, thank you for being here tonight. Do you have more clarity, obviously given you are on the Armed Services Committee, about what happened and who's behind this attack? Well, it seems pretty clear that it was yeah, an Iranian-backed militia. And as you said, these attacks have happened in a number of different places. And it's not like they were trying to avoid casualties. Uh, we were just able to defend and, frankly, got lucky to date, and, and one got through. Uh, but there's no question this was Iranian-backed militias. Now, the information we receive is Iran is not directly ordering the attacks, uh, but they have given a general order to basically um, try to disrupt the Americans. And they've given them the space, as, as former Secretary Espert was saying, to, to make those attacks. Um, so, yeah, there's no question that Iran is behind this attack. OK, so just to, to be sure, because that's important, you have not seen intelligence that Iran directed this attack? Correct. OK. In fact, the general reporting we get, like I said, is that Iran's not directing these attacks. 
but they're arming the militias in question and they're giving the passive go ahead to do what they need to do without without specificity. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's not a direct order, but Iran is still responsible for these attacks without question. Even though they're distancing themselves, which I think everyone is kind of, you know, in disbelief about. But But I think the big question tonight for us is what's going to come next? Because you've seen the president vowing to re- retaliate. And I wonder from your perspective, what is an appropriate proportionate response to an attack that does kill three service members and injure 40 more? Well, I think you have to go more directly after the source, which is more directly after Iran. And again, Secretary Esper, I think, laid out the options. There are a variety of different targets that would impact Iran. Not all of them are in Iran. But I think you've got to put that on the table because the calculus right now is just not in our favor. Iran is allowing these attacks to happen with no consequences to themselves. Um, And as long as that continues, the attacks will continue and our service members will be at risk. And that can't be tolerated. You've got to change Iran's calculus and have them bear some of the cost of what they are doing. So for what's on the table, would you, I mean, is it a strike on Iranian soil? Is it cyber, not kinetic activity, but, but in the cyber domain? I mean, what would you believe would be proportionate? Now, all of the above is on the table. And look, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to you know, make the call here when the Department of Defense has a lot more details on this than I do. But you know, I think going to the source of these weapons, um, we're talking missiles and drones that are driving this. They're being made and exported from Iran. Go after that source um, and try to disrupt it. And similarly, these, these weapons are some of the same ones that Russia is using to terrorize the population of Ukraine. So I think that is one thing we should seriously look at. Where are these weapons coming from? Can we disrupt that flow? The 165 attacks since October 17th, I mean, every time there was an attack, we heard critics saying that the White House wasn't doing enough to deter this. They said that they were doing it. You know, just a few weeks ago, the president said that he had delivered the message to Iran and they know not to do anything. But I mean, is it clear to you that that deterrence did not work here? Well, obviously it hasn't worked. The, the, the attacks have continued, but that presupposes that there was something the president could have done that automatically would have worked. And that I don't think is the case. Look, we, we don't want to launch a wider war within the Middle East. We don't want Hezbollah to launch you know, all of their rockets on Israel. We don't want Iran to full-scale you know, attack in Iraq our forces. So you're always striking that balance between deterrence and escalation. Can I ask you? Look, Congressman, when do we know if it's a wider war? Because I think some people, you know, who aren't on the Armed Services Committee would look at this and say 165 attacks, three dead U.S. soldiers. They would ask if we're there yet. Well, well, two things about that. First of all, obviously, it's, it's a wider war, but a wider war can always become wider still. That's why I specified you know, the big thing we don't want. We don't want Hezbollah coming down from Lebanon and opening a second front on Israel. That would be the huge opening of the conflict. And then if Iran started to more directly launch their own weapons from Iran on our targets, as opposed to going through proxies, proxies who don't have the same capability that Iran does. Iran could also do what they were doing, by the way, I like to point out, during the Trump administration, mm-hmm. when President Trump likes to say he could wave a magic wand and make this all go away, when Iran was attacking Saudi Arabia and UAE and international ships in a variety of different places. So yes, this war is wider certainly than it was in Gaza, but it can very easily get wider and vastly more dangerous than that. And that's what the president has to guard against. 
Yeah, and Secretary Esper noted that as well. Congressman Adam Smith, thank you for joining tonight. And of course, our thoughts and are with those families and we are forever grateful Absolutely. for their service. Absolutely, Th thank you very much, Caleb. Up next, nation after nation are now cutting off funding to a United Nations relief agency that distributes aid inside Gaza. Several workers have been fired after allegations they were directly involved in the terror attack on October 7th. Details ahead. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. An Israeli intelligence report finding that 13 United Nations aid workers were involved in the October 7th terror attacks by Hamas that killed 1,200 people in Israel. An intelligence summary that was shared with CNN found that six workers infiltrated Israel as part of the attack. Four more were involved in the kidnappings. Three others asked to provide armed backup. The New York Times also reports that one of them took part in a massacre at a kibbutz where 97 people were slaughtered. I should note CNN has not seen the underlying intelligence here and cannot corroborate it, but the allegations are being taken seriously, including in the U.S., and the fallout has been swift. The United Nations agency has fired several of the staff members, and at least a dozen of the agency's top donors, including the U.S., have now suspended their funding for the agency. Joining me tonight, Dan Senor, former foreign policy advisor to the George W. Bush administration, and to Mitt Romney, also the host of the Israel-focused podcast that is very good, Call Me Back. I mean, this agency, I think a lot of people probably weren't super familiar with it unless you're paying attention to, to Middle East politics. But as someone who has studied this so closely and studied Israel, what did you make of the allegations? I wasn't surprised. I will tell you that this agency has always been extremely peculiar. The UN has jurisdiction over refugees around the world. They have a, a, a function, an agency that deals with uh, refugees everywhere, globally, except for one part of the world, Palestinians. They have this dedicated agency called UNRWA. There were 360,000 refugees that the UN classified after the 1948 War of Independence, mm -hmm. where these people were dislocated from their homes. That number has grown to over 5 million, almost 6 million, because Palestinians, according to this agency, are the only category that can automatically transfer to their descendants, including adopted children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren refugee status. And what has happened is, no matter where these people live around the world, they have refugee status, and Hamas has basically been able to take control of this agency's delivering of services in the Gaza Strip. So we often say, why this is so perplexing and such a challenge is we often say, oh, if Hamas is just removed from Gaza, there can be some resumption of normalcy in Gaza and a state could be established. And you realize how much of the infrastructure of Gaza, even UN agencies operating in Gaza- Have were, to deal with Hamas. Were, were populated by Hamas, that Hamas was actually staffing these organizations. They were working in the schools, they were working in the hospitals. And Hamas is depending on this agency 
to deliver resources to Palestinians. Hamas doesn't have to provide the resources. And Hamas has quasi-control over the, over the agency. So with these 14 countries and maybe growing that have pulled their funding for now, I, I mean, does this group have reserves? What do they do next? Yeah, I mean, I think their budget is something like a little over a billion dollars a year. So taxpayers, U.S. taxpayers are funding this agency where they definitely know some number of employees of the agency were participating in the October 7th attack at the site of the massacres in certain locations in southern Israel, involved with kidnapping Israelis. So right now, there are Arab countries, there are other third parties that could provide resources to Palestinians, but the infrastructure that has been existing in Gaza is collapsing. And here we have this quote-unquote third-party UN agency that that's, that's like part of the rot. Well, and I think that's the quandary here because, I mean, I think everyone was horrified by this, these allegations and what came out and the fact that they were involved in actual kidnappings and the attacks. But as Secretary Blinken was framing it today, UNRWA is kind of indispensable at the moment to actually helping distribute the aid. And, and there are still people who are starving in Gaza and diseases rampant. So what's the solution here? This is, so this is a classic situation where everyone says, okay, so Israel, what's your plan? I'm always told, like, Israel, you know, so what's Israel going to do? And Israel doesn't want to deal with this. Israel doesn't want to deal with this. Israel says we have to remove Hamas, which you realize is Hamas is controlling a lot more than just what we see on the surface as Hamas. So Israel is turning to the rest of the world saying, what's your plan for Gaza? Like, why, why is this only on Israel's doorstep. Israel experienced this genocidal attempt on its territory, but the reality is Gaza also shares a border with Egypt. What's Egypt's plan for Hamas? What's, what's Egypt's plan for all these Palestinians? Everyone is worried, as I am, about the future of these Palestinian civilians. Why not let them out of southern Gaza? Why not let some of them get into Egypt? What, like, There's over 20 countries in the Arab world that express horror about what's happening in Gaza. Clearly, the infrastructure that's in place in Gaza cannot sustain protecting these civilians from the horrors of Hamas. In fact, Hamas is controlling these resources. So I think Israel needs to start looking to other countries and saying, you have a plan? We don't have a plan. America doesn't have a plan. We need a plan. Yeah, and you see that the civilians are the ones who are kind of lost in the brink. Dan Sinor, thank you for coming on to talk about such an important issue. Up next for us here, Super Bowl 58 now set. Scramble for tickets is on. Wait until you hear what the cheap seats cost this year. Let me give you a hint. It's not so cheap. Also, the odds that Taylor Swift will be able to make it, given the night before she'll be on the other side of the world. The Super Bowl matchup has been set as the Kansas City Chiefs are hoping to become back-to-back NFL champs when they face the San Francisco 49ers on February 11th. Already, this year's Super Bowl tickets are the most expensive ever on record. So what's the price for the cheapest ticket? And how cheap is it really? CNN's Harry Enton is here. Harry, what is the least expensive ticket? And how does it compare to past Super Bowls? Yeah, so even as we were preparing for this segment, the cheapest ticket has become more expensive on the secondary market. It is now well over $8,000 for the cheapest ticket. I don't know about you, but the idea of spending $8,000 for one ticket to one game in which my teams are not even involved, not exactly my idea of a good time. Uh, If you look back last year, the cheapest ticket was, in fact, a little bit less than $6,000. Hey, relatively reasonable compared to that over $8,000. Go all the way back to Super Bowl one. You know what the cheapest ticket was for that Super Bowl? What? Six dollars. Six dollars. Now, there has been inflation that's taken place, so maybe it'd be more like $56 in today's money. But I think six dollars would be much more my speed. Of course, Super Bowl one wasn't even sold out. I can assure you 
that this Super Bowl will most certainly be sold out. So we shouldn't even say the cheapest ticket because really it's just the least expensive, expensive ticket. Yeah, I think that's it's a better way to phrase it. Yes, it's like kind of like being like the most beautiful person, like in I, I don't even know in a cemetery, a remote in, island, a remote island, or or Desert something with island? the skeletons or the mummies, like the most beautiful mummy. Okay. That's what it is. It's the most beautiful mummy. Okay, I hope the mummy audience won't be offended by that. I hope not. The big question uh, that I have, my sister has, a lot of people have, Taylor Swift. She has been going to to so many of the Chiefs games, and she was at the playoff game. Yes. But she has a concert in Tokyo the night before. She does. Can she feasibly? I mean, she's Taylor Swift, so I'm going to assume the answer is yes. But can she make it? She could teleport back. She's Taylor Swift. She can do anything. <laughs> Look, I've actually calculated this out. The thing to remember is that Tokyo is 17 hours ahead of mm-hmm. Las Vegas, Nevada. So if you take that into account and you figure that the flight time is about 11.5 hours, her uh, concert will end at about 5 a.m., uh, Las Vegas time on Saturday, 11.5. She should make it back in plenty of time for the 3.30 start on Sunday. I have no doubt. If she wants to be there, she will be there. She's Taylor Swift. She can do anything she wants. Are your Taylor Swift sources saying that she'll be there? Um, I am. Yes, I believe she may very well be there. If (laughs) if, if my hopes and dreams come true, she will be there. Harry Anton, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us on this busy news night. CNN News Night with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.